Thank you, Children's Choir, for that ministry of music. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Appreciate your choosing to be with us and to come and to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a joy to see you and glad that you are here. Trust that you've all picked up a handout for this evening as we continue looking at memorable verses in the Bible. Tonight it's First Timothy, excuse me, it's Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as we think about that verse, we are going to be talking about contentment. Contentment. John Piper has made the notable statement, God is the most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. I think there's a lot of truth to that, to that statement. To experience contentment is both the duty and the privilege of the child of God. To experience contentment is the duty of the child of God. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And to experience contentment is the privilege of the child of God. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So as we move forward in talking about the contentment, the first thing we need to do is consider what it is that we're talking about. What does contentment look like? What is the expectation that we should have as we think about being contented? What does God want of us? And what should we seek to... Uh, manifest in our own life as we think about being contented. Well, the definition that uh, I bring forth to you tonight is the first. Contentment is the willingness and ability to do what God asks of me with the resources that he provides. Webster defines contentment as the limiting of desires to that which one has. Of course, no mention of God. Uh, at all in that particular statement. Contentment, as defined by Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, a Puritan author and the author of a rather famous book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, as he unpacks uh, the whole idea of contentment, he defines contentment as following. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's probably the best of the definitions. It's a little wordy, but it, I think, does a good way, uh, goes a long way in, capt in capturing what the scriptures would have us to understand. Summing it up, contentment is the realization that I have all that I need to do all that God requires of me, right? So, you know, contentment is, is hard to get our head around, especially because of everything that our society teaches us about contentment, et, et cetera. So the thought, the word, if, if we had to pick one word tonight to replace in our vocabulary for contentment, it would be sufficiency, sufficiency, to realize our sufficiency, 
And ultimately, we're going to see that sufficiency is found in Christ. But we have all that we need in order to accomplish God's purpose and will for our lives. Now, let's unpack that. So, how is one to experience contentment in life? Key verse is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the concluding statement. So we want to go back and look at what precedes that statement and what the Apostle Paul is addressing. So the first thing we want to talk about is where does contentment come from? The context of Philippians chapter 4 and 13 is Paul responding to a gift that was sent to him by the church in Macedonia. They had been very generous. Paul's in prison. And he is thankful for the gift that they had sent, but he wants them to know that his situation is not dependent upon that gift. While he tells them that you did the right thing, and while he is thankful for it, he wants them to know that, that the sun does not rise and the sun does not set on this gift. And the gift itself was not absolutely necessary for the work to go forward. That doesn't dismiss his appreciation or even dismiss the importance of it, but he, he wants to make it clear that it's not the gift that makes Paul sufficient. So in unpacking that idea, we start with A. Contentment does not come as a result of one's condition or circumstances. He said, not that I speak of being in need, all right? So uh, he's writing this, and he's saying, not because I'm in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And he asks, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. So contentment is not dependent upon or contingent upon particular circumstances. He has learned regardless of the circumstances, to be content. Contentment is not dependent upon whether we have little or much. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And yes, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Now, let's stop here for a moment and, and look at the dichotomy of those, those two things. I've learned how to live in poverty, and I've learned how to live in prosperity. It's easy to jump to the conclusion that to live in poverty, of course, uh, that's a challenge to be content to recognize sufficiency when I'm in poverty, but in prosperity? That, that, that should be a no-brainer, right? I mean, we should understand we're prosperous, uh, we have all that we need, we have a sufficiency. But in reality, in reality, uh, there's a great temptation that comes with prosperity and uh, a temptation to be discontent and especially to begin to look at the wherewithal that we have, the monies that we have in the bank as the source of our security. Uh, to think that we're okay. If we get sick, we've got money to pay. If the car breaks down, well, uh, we can take it to the mechanic and, and get it fixed. But if that money begins to dwindle, what are we going to do? But one of the oddities in life is that 
oftentimes, the more you have, the more worried you can become. Or you have more to lose. And you have more responsibility. And so, yes, you do have to learn to be content even in prosperity. That is sufficient. So, let me give you another illustration. An illustration in which I'm showing my age, but there's no point in being old if you don't show it every once in a while. And I'm not talking necessarily about walking with a cane, but experiences, all right? So, how many of you can remember, as an adult, not having a cell phone? Raise your hand. Look around. You're in the minority. You see that? Okay, there, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, we're in the minority, people. So the rest of you, you can go to sleep while I finish my illustration. But for those of us who can remember what it was like before we had a cell phone, right? Uh, there used to be a thing called a map that you opened up, you unfolded, and your passenger held in their lap as you were driving to some destination that you were not aware of, okay? There was no such thing as a cell phone. There was no such thing as a GPS. There was no such thing as an app to get you to your destination. You either had to get directions from somebody who said, oh, you just go down the street, and then you're going to see, you know, a donkey on the right, and then you turn. And, of course, the donkey isn't there anymore. Uh, so I digress, okay? But what happens, people, is now how many of you that just raised your hand now have a cell phone? Okay, just about everybody, all right? How do you feel when you don't have it? When you forget it, when you leave it at home, are you a little nervous? You feel like, I don't have my cell phone. I can't call anybody if my car breaks down, right? I don't have a GPS, all right? I felt really weird driving out west when I lost signal on my cell phone. And all of a sudden, out had to come the map. Uh, I couldn't use the GPS on the cell phone anymore. So some of you know what it's like to be in an area where there's no tower and no reception. But the funny thing is, when we didn't have the cell phone, we didn't have the fears that were created after we have the cell phone, or we have learned to become dependent upon it. So the dangers in life and the dangers in prosperity is to take one's eye off of Christ and of God and his sufficiency and to place it on something else for our sense of security or our sense of enablement or uh, ability. Contentment is not dependent upon our physical condition. For notice in verse 12, he says, I've learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger. So now he's looking at foodstuffs. And he knows what it is 
to have all that he wanted to eat. And he also knows what it meant to go without food. And then lastly, contentment is not dependent upon whether our circumstances are pleasant or not. For he says in Philippians 4.12, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, and now these words, abundance and need. And the NAS translates that word for abundance and need to suffering need. So we're not even talking about a matter of distinguishing between our wants and our needs. So when we're talking about contentment, we're not saying that we ought to be content that our needs are being met. Right? That'd be a secular view of what contentment is and learning to live within your income, that kind of thing. That's not the kind of contentment we're talking about tonight. We're not talking about learning how to live within your means or you know, what it is to be satisfied not having designer clothes, uh, but you, you know, you've got to wear Walmart stuff. No, we're not, we're not talking about that kind of contentment. We're talking about sufficiency. Sufficiency. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, because contentment is not a denial of our circumstances. For Paul knew when he was hungry and when he was not hungry. He said, I've learned to be content whether I have plenty or whether I am hungry. So being content is not being impervious to our circumstances. Number three, contentment is not a matter of being impervious to our circumstances. That is, that one is unaware of being needy. Paul could distinguish between the times when he had little and when he had abundance. Stoicism was kind of the idea of living in denial, of sucking it up and, and acting as though you live in a, a bubble that doesn't affect you. It was a, a kind of mystical denial of just saying, I'm not cold if it's 10 below zero. I'm not cold, I'm not hungry. I have no needs. That, that's not what we're talking about tonight. We're not, we're not talking about living in denial or living in a situation in which we are just totally unaffected by our circumstances so that they are meaningless to us. We're, we're, not, we're not saying that. Number four, contentment is experienced apart from our circumstances or in the midst of our circumstances. Contentment is not determined by our circumstances. So application. The non-biblical worldview believes that contentment will be gained through a change in our circumstances. I will be content when I just have, and you can fill in the predicate, a new house, the boyfriend or girlfriend that I don't have, the degree that I am working towards in college, that proficiency when I raise my batting average to 300, that healing, when this pain in my back will go away, or I've had that operation. You know, if I just had so-and-so, I would be content. But we're taking it a step further for we're talking about sufficiency that I will talk about just a little bit later. It is crucial that we understand 
The contentment is not to be gained through a change in our circumstances. It's not to be achieved through a material change. So it's not, Lord, give me $100,000 more so that I can be content. Or, Lord, when my debt is paid off, my mortgage has been realized, then, then I can be content, then I can be satisfied, then, then I can have a sense of well-being and sufficiency. It's not to be achieved through a physiological change. That is my physical condition. It's not the color of my hair. Uh, it's not whether I have hair or not. It's not a matter of getting out of a wheelchair. It's not a matter of a change in my physical condition. And thirdly, it's not achieved through a sociological change. That is a change in my relationship. So, you know, life is miserable, but if I just divorced my wife and I could finally marry the right person, then life would be good and I'd be happy and everything would be great. Or if I just could have that child. I so desperately want a child. And I'm not here to, to minimize people's sorrows and hurts because of not being able to have a child. But, but that's not the end all. That, that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about having contentment in this biblical realm. So we don't, aren't to look to those areas for our contentment. We need to ask ourselves, number four, what have you been basing your hopes upon? What have you been saying to yourself is needed in order for me to be content? And now I want to broaden into this whole aspect of sufficiency. Efficiency. Well, we're not just talking about a condition of satisfaction, but we're talking about a realization that I have everything that I need in order to accomplish the purpose and will of God. So it goes beyond physical condition. And it goes beyond money. So let's think about for a moment Moses at the burning bush. And God appears to Moses and he's speaking from the burning bush. And God gives Moses the responsibility and privilege of leading the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. You know the story. And God is sending Moses to be the deliverer of the children of Israel. And Moses' objection, if you remember, is, I can't speak. And he says, I'm not eloquent, neither before or since you have spoken to me. Now, that, that's really a, an important statement that he makes. All right. and, the, and the word for eloquent, okay, in the Hebrew, is, has more to do with a, with a heavy tongue. And so most commentators take that to be either that he stuttered or that he spoke with a, a severe lisp. Either way, not what you would think of as an orator, not what you would think of as a, as a great leader, uh, to have some kind of severe pe speech impediment. 
But what Moses says is, I was not eloquent neither heretofore nor since you have spoken to me. So he's expecting that there's going to be a change. If he's going to be going to the land of Egypt to deliver the children of Israel, then God's got to deal with this speech impediment. Okay? Uh, I'm not sufficient. I'm not able. I'm not qualified. I can't do it. Because God, you knew I had a speech impediment, and you told me to go, and I still have this speech impediment. You gave me a duty that I can't fulfill. You gave me a responsibility that's beyond me. Because he was looking at the sufficiency to be found not in God's enablement or God's empowerment, not to be in what God was going to do through his word and through his grace, but he was seeing as being, ten, as being dependent upon his own abilities. And it's easy for us to start relying on our own wisdom, our own eloquence, our own gift of gab, or whatever the case may be, and especially when it comes to witnessing, and think, well, I can't do it because I don't have every answer, and uh, you know, I have this reason, and, and because my personality is such that I'm not very outgoing, and I'm shy, and all these other things, and if only I weren't shy, then I could do this or whatever, okay? So when we're getting to this, I can do all things, we're not talking about lifting 500-pound boulders. We're talking about an ability to do whatever God asks of you, that you have that sufficiency, and you recognize that you have all that God requires of you. So that means also in providing for your family, because God requires that you provide for your family. So we are not, divorce, we are not divorcing financial issues from this scenario, but what we're saying is that whatever God asks of us, we have the sufficiency to fulfill what he requires. Well, how? Number two. Contentment is not a natural condition. Contentment must be learned. Paul said to be instructed uh, oh, excuse me. Paul had to be instructed in how to be content as a Christian. For it says in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever state, whatever situation, I am to be content. Key word, learned. There is a knowledge that is gained through experience. Paul speaks of gaining experiential knowledge in verse 12 where he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Right? So those words, I know, is talking about an experiential knowledge. Paul says, I've lived through that. I've experienced that. I know that. I've lived that. So what we're talking about is not an experiential knowledge, but we're rather talking about intellectual knowledge. He's talking about what he's learned through instruction what he's been taught, not by what he's experienced, not by looking back on his life and learning from, you know, the fact that, uh, whatever. He's not learning it through experience. He's learning it through instruction. 
And he goes on to say, see, however, Paul had to be instructed in how to be content as a Christian. In verse 12, it says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The idea of learning the secret is often associated with mystery religions or organizations that have secret instructions and rules that new initiates learn after joining the society. I don't know if you know much about the Masons, but think about the Masons for a moment. The Masons have a secret handshake uh, to identify themselves. Uh, They have other uh, doctrines, teachings, uh, that one is not supposed to know until one becomes a Mason. And after you become a Mason, you are given these secrets, you're given these, these rules, you're taught how to climb the ladder and masonry and, and uh, attain different levels. Paul's using that kind of terminology, but he's using it for Christianity. And so in this instance, it's a secret that Paul came to be instructed in after he was saved. In other words, he couldn't know this until he had a personal relationship with Christ. But once he had a personal relationship with Christ, then he was instructed, taught, he learned a secret, he says, a mystery. Something that was previously unknowable. The secret is, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret is that his sufficiency is found in Christ. This word to strengthen, according to uh, the Greek grammar, Luanida is to cause someone to have the ability to do or experience something, to make someone able, to give capability to, to enable, to strengthen, to empower. He says, I have the ability, have what I need, to do all things. Number three, contentment comes through a certain knowledge that our sufficiency is to be found in Christ. So let's look at an example in the life of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about what God had done in his life and how privileged he had been. He'd even been caught up to the third heaven and had received this uh, view of heaven and the realities of eternal life, etc. He had many revelations. And so he says, starting at verse 7, so to keep from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, it says a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. All right? So he's pleading, he's literally begging God. He has full confidence in God. He has full faith in God. He has complete dependence upon God. God, you can remove this. But God chose not to remove it. God chose 
not to heal him of whatever this thorn in the flesh is. Now, most commentators think that it had to do with the uh, very limited eyesight that the Apostle Paul had. The uh, church history tells us he was virtually blind. Uh, that's supported by the book of Galatians when he says, see what I've written in such large letters. Uh, so uh, probably a result of his encounter on the road to Damascus when he was blinded by the great light. He received his sight back, but not anywhere near 2020 because God had other things in store and that was to humble him through this experience. But notice what it says as we move on. Starting at verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Here's our word. My grace is enough for you. You can find contentment in my grace. You don't need this to be removed. You don't need that change in circumstance. You can be effectual for me with all your limitations. You can be used just as you are. You don't need any change. My grace is sufficient for you. And it goes on to say in verse 9, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So when he's saying I am weak, it's when I recognize my inadequacies, when I recognize my deficiencies, when I come to a realization that in myself, I can't do this. He says, that's when I'm in my best. That's, what, that's when I'm at my strengths. When I've come to a recognition that I can't rely upon me, my abilities, my resources, nothing, but rather I have to rely upon Christ, then, he says, I'm strong. Then I'm in the place where I can be used. There I'm in the place where God is going to provide for me and care for me. You know, it is foolish for us to think we can save enough money to handle any particular circumstance that will come into our life. You can't save enough money to be secure. A hurricane can come through and wipe out everything in your life. Everybody knows the story of Job. We just heard about it again uh, the other Sunday night with uh, Pastor Herb. You know that he was the richest man on the face of the earth. And you know in the space of a day he lost it all. Any sense of control that we have is vanity. We don't have control. Only God does. 
He is our sufficiency. He is, for lack and sorry, it's kind of vulgar to even talk about God in this way, but he's our insurance plan. He is the one that we can rely upon in any circumstance or any situation. That I can have the assurance that I have today what I need for today, which is Matthew chapter 6, be not therefore anxious, saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and with what shall we be clothed? And that whole section ends with the idea with being content with what you have today for tomorrow, the evil is sufficient for itself. I have enough for today. The future is in God's hands. He will provide. He will provide. All that I have need of. In the present, I have enough. In anything in the future, I can be guaranteed that he is going to supply me with whatever it is that I need to do his will and to accomplish his purpose. So D, the sufficiency is to be found in Christ. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Same word that's in our text. This idea of sufficiency again. For, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the comparison is between loving money and the reason to love the money is this, this, this hope and trust that you have that your money is going to take care of you, that your money is going to provide for you, your, your money is going to be sure that you have a place to live and you have enough money to be sure that you have enough to eat and you have enough money that if you get sick you can go to the hospital. You, and, and so you're looking at your money and saying, I've got enough. No. Our sufficiency isn't in how much money we have. Well, that's just one illustration. Our sufficiency isn't how well we talk. Our sufficiency isn't how bright we are. Our sufficiency isn't in anything other than a God who has given us what we need to do his work and to accomplish his purpose. As a young pastor, there were a number of things that I thought was important in ministry. And there were things that I had abilities that I thought were going to be useful and I thought were going to make me successful. And you've got to remember, I started out as a youth pastor. So one of the things that uh, I kind of prided myself in, and I know this is hard to believe, you've got to take it by faith, was my athletic ability. And so I played all the sports with the, the kids, and that's how I was relating to them, like a lot of youth pastors do, and I was out on the basketball court, et cetera. And I was playing with them, playing volleyball and all that kind of stuff, and relating to the kids, and lo and behold, didn't I have a heart attack at an early age, in my very early 20s. And all of a sudden, for a period of time, I couldn't 
I couldn't uh, play basketball, I couldn't play volleyball in those days. It made you rest in ways that they don't today, etc. But to make a long story short, my way of relating to kids was taken from me. And all of a sudden, I learned that, you know, the most important thing is giving them the Word of God. And it's the Word of God that's going to really bring these kids to the place of maturity and, and depth where they need to be. As I was older, I really envied the pastors that had the real outgoing personality. The pastor hellers of this world that can remember everybody's name, who everybody loves, and who can just carry on a conversation. You know, he can carry on a conversation with an answering machine. I've heard him do it. He's sitting in his office, and you know, he's talking, he's talking, he's talking, he's talking. And, and I looked at him, and I said, well, how are you doing? He said, oh, well, no, I just got the answering machine. But he left this message, you know. I don't know, I don't get it. I, And there was a lot of duress in my life because I, I really thought, how am I going to be used? Because I'm not like that. I'm not outgoing. I'm not effervescent. I'm not funny. People don't gravitate towards me. I'm not the life of the party. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm the way God intended me to be. I'm the person that God intended me to be. And you know, one of the greatest benefits in my life happened just a few years ago. I don't even know how many years ago now it is. Maybe eight, seven, six, I lose track. But remember when I was in a wheelchair for a year. And in that year, I was really limited in what I could do where I could go. And I was limited to basically studying the scriptures. And it was the best year of my life. And then all of a sudden, I realized, you know, you can sit down to preach. You can walk with a cane. Or it's not about human ability or strength. It's about what God wants to accomplish in you and through you. And you have, by God's grace, everything in your life you need to do what God wants you to do. So take your eyes off of your limitations. Take your eyes off of your limited resources. Don't look at other people's gifts and abilities and see how God is using them. But instead, thank God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139. And all of our members are written in his book. And he has designed us perfectly for the work that he has given us to do. He's given us spiritual gifts. He's given us the resources. He's given us the promises that we can do all that he wants us to do because of the sufficiency of Christ. And in that, we're to be content.
So the conclusion. In order to be content, we need to be instructed in the sufficiency of Christ. Contentment does not come through our circumstances. Contentment does not come automatically with our being a Christian. Contentment does not even come through having a good relationship to God. We must learn to be content. What is that that we must learn and how are we to learn it? Once again, we must be instructed that Christ is sufficient for all our needs. We need to be instructed in the person and character of Christ, such as these truths that you know, but we need to know them better. He is truthful in all that he says and all that he, he promises. He is righteous. He is good. He's wise. He's powerful. He's loving. He's patient. He's kind. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's forgiving. So that in those times in which I feel inadequate or I feel that my sin is going to keep me from being what God would have me to be or I feel that these circumstances are happening because God is judging me for my sinfulness to realize that my sin is forgiven, that they are removed as far as the east is from the west. This is not God's judgment. At best, it's God's discipline in which he is seeking to make me a better Christian and a better follower of him. It is not God's displeasure, but it's God's pleasure. Or Hebrews tells us that it is his son that he chastises as a faithful father. It's actually an exercise of his love. But I have to learn that. I have to be instructed in that in order to have that peace and comfort in times in which the evil one is going to try to make me feel guilty and estranged from God. For the great promise that he will never lie is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So anytime you feel abandoned, forsaken, forgotten, it's a lie. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you all the time. My sufficiency will always be there. So, he will never fail us. We need to be instructed in these things. See, we have all we need because all we need is Christ. He is the source of every good and perfect gift. Uh, long psalm there, I'm, I'm not going to go through that. So let me just conclude with these, these thoughts. I can do all things, not lift a 500-pound rock, but all that he requires of me, all that he wants of me. I have all the resources that I need, and he will supply whatever I need in the future. My sufficiency is in Christ. But we constantly have to be reminded of that truth. Even as we have been looking at the children of Israel on Sunday morning, how time and time again they're learning the same lesson. We have to remind ourselves. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Be instructed. Looking at Philippians as a whole, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Just before this passage, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are just, whatever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, 
Whatever things be of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Meditate on that. Reflect upon those truths. Realize the faithfulness and goodness of God. He's our sufficiency. Let's pray. Our Father, I I pray that you would help us to always see our sufficiency is to be found in you. Any success, any prowess, any outcome that's going to last for eternity is a result of your work and your grace. Lord, teach us more and more of our inadequacies. Help us to rely less and less on our abilities and our talents. To to realize how incapable we are of achieving any spiritual end or outcome. We can't will people into heaven. We can't argue people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We can't win them by our incredible personality. Lord, salvation is a gift. Faith is a gift of yours in which you cause a person to be born again. It is a work of your spirit. It is you using your word. Lord, help us to always give you praise and honor and glory, to recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So as you grant to us thankful hearts, you will teach us more and more about your sufficiency. Lord, the more we give you praise, the more we recognize it's not about us. So teach us of your worthiness. Teach us of your greatness. Teach us of your surpassing transcendence that you are so superior to us. Remove our fears. Help us to trust in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.